Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we continue our Lenten journey and the study of the Gospel of John, help us to open our minds and our hearts to understand what it is that you want us as individuals to get out of all of this, particularly in today's lesson. There are two extremes, and yet they tell us in a better way who you are. So help us to really understand who you are for us so that we might respond in the appropriate way. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are going to begin uh, the study of two extremes, you might say. The overabundant love of God in the description of the Good Shepherd. And then from there we go to the opposite extreme, the disturbing story of the raising of Lazarus. We have to keep in mind, as we have always in this particular gospel, that these are not necessarily consecutive or continuing stories. Uh, they are different portions of Christ's life on earth that is dedicated to telling us who Christ is, who God is for us. And if we keep that in mind, I think you'll find that the story of the Good Shepherd has a, a very pleasant, comforting feeling because it expresses the divine love of God through Jesus Christ to all mankind. And we all want to be loved. But love, as you know, is not necessarily affection. So often when we talk about love, the first thing that comes particularly to young people's mind is you know what. And that is not what biblical love is all about, or agape love. Agape love, you know, there's three kinds of love, you might say. Agape love means God's unconditional love, or a parent's unconditional love for their children. They might slap them up once in a while, but they still love them. Um, then there's filial love which is for the brother and sister type of love, or relative. Uh, and then there's eros, which, is, of course, is sexual attraction and affection of that kind of thing. All right. What we're going to be talking about this morning is the unconditional love of God through Jesus Christ and what he went through to give that to us. Now you've got to remember one thing though. Quite often when there are sermons about love, it seems as if, well, God's going to accept anything and everything 
if you love him, he'll just, you know, open his arms and welcome you back. To some degree, that's true. But you've got to remember that God is also perfect justice. And there are consequences for those people who go against the love of God or take it for granted and say, oh, well, I can do this. You know, this is just a little white lie. God's going to forgive me. Remember, a little white lie is still wrong. Any offense against the love of God is wrong. And so you've got to kind of understand the balance. And that is what a good Christian or Catholic Christian life is about. That is what love is. It is a balance. It is not all one-sided. So we have to understand that. All right. So let's get into chapter 10 here. It's a fairly short chapter, and yet I think it's powerful in what it tells us. I'm going to read some of this because there are so many different little uh, nuances that I'd like to bring out that you have a tendency to overlook. When you've heard a story so often, you have a tendency to kind of say, oh, oh, hum, I've heard it before, and, you know, just let it slip over. But I'd like to bring out some of those things here. Now, this is, of course, not directly related in a time sequence to previous uh, teachings, and yet there is a connection. Men and <clears throat> amen, amen, I say to you, whoever does not enter a sheepfold through the gate, but climbs over elsewhere, is a thief and a robber. But whoever enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice, as he calls his own sheep by name and leads them. Now, first of all, I've heard a lot of people say, well, I don't like to be classified as a sheep. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, we have to admit, sheep are somewhat dumb animals. But don't you love a little puppy dog that's just as dumb, you know? Or a cuddly cat that is just, uh, you know, wants to wind around your leg. You know, nobody kicks those around. Uh, we all love them. And that is the kind of mentality Christ is using in this story. He's not saying that you are just a sheep. You know? But... <clears throat> I'm going to read something from another book that will kind of uh, sort of tie into this. But let's look at it in this way. He's using this as a metaphor of God the Father is really the head sheep herder. Okay. Christ is the sheep and Christ is also the sheep gate. Now, what's a sheep gate? Well, in Europe, not so much here in America, but in Europe, sheep are herded into large, very large pastures that are surrounded by generally brick walls about so high. Okay, 
and there will be an opening so far. And at night, the shepherd will corral his sheep with inside of this uh, surrounding area. And he will place himself at the gate. And usually he will put his, uh, his rod and his staff in a form such as this. And then he will actually, you know, put his sleeping bed or whatever it is he's using right up against that to prevent or to be aware of anyone trying to get in, particularly uh, wolves and coyotes and whatever. But in this analogy, he is really referring to people who take him seriously, who believe in him and want to follow him. And the robbers and the thieves are those people who are trying to get to heaven, but not through Christ, or not by doing the things that God, prior to Christ, has told them. And so, you've got to kind of think of who are all the players in this story in order to get the full meaning, okay? So, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now, you might think, well, that sounds a little strange, you know. If you, as I just said, uh, sheep are somewhat dumb, how do they know their name? Let me read from another book here, which I think is just great. This is... Philip Keller, he is a professional sheep herder of a very large ranch. I believe it's in Australia, but I'm not sure. And he hires many people to take care of his sheep. I mean, this is a real professional business. But he is also a great Christian, and he's written several books. He's taken, for example, Psalm 23. We all know Psalm 23 is the Lord is my shepherd, and he takes line by line and really explains how that applies to real life in sheep herding, okay? But just to bring out this point here where the sheep know the shepherd's voice, I'm going to read just a short portion of this. It says, the relationship which rapidly develops between a shepherd and the sheep under his care is to a definite degree dependent upon the use of the shepherd's voice. Sheep quickly become accustomed to their owner's particular voice. They are acquainted with its unique tone. They know its peculiar sounds and inflections. They can distinguish it from that of any other person. If a stranger should come among them, they would not recognize nor respond to his voice, even in the same way that they would, or in the same way that they would to their own shepherd. Even if the visitor should use the same words and phrases as that of their original or rightful owner, they, the sheep would not react in the same way. It is a case of becoming actually conditioned to the familiar nuances 
and personal accent of their shepherd's call. It used to amaze and intrigue visitors to my ranches to discover that my sheep were so indifferent to their voices. Occasionally I would invite them to call my sheep by using the same words and phrases which I habitually employed, but it was to no avail. The ewes and the lambs, and even the rams, would simply stand and stare at the newcomers in rather blank bewilderment, as if to say, who are you? This is simply because, over a period of time, sheep come to associate the sound of the shepherd's voice with special benefits. When the shepherd calls to them, it is for a specific purpose that has their own best interest in mind. It is not something he does just to indulge himself or to pass the time away. Okay. And he goes on and on, you know. But I read, read this um, primarily to let you know that what Christ is saying here is in fact true. The shepherd does know the voice. I mean, the sheep do know the voice of the shepherd. So Jesus said again, Amen, amen, I say to you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. So he's talking about the people uh, versus the Jewish rulers of the recent past. I am the gate. In other words, I am again. This is the second time. It's about five times just in this chapter alone. Whoever enters through me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and slaughter and destroy. But I came so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. There again is the word abundantly, which we have seen used, excuse me, in the story of the uh, water being changed into wine at the uh, marriage feast of Cana and of the feeding of the 5,000 with uh, the 12 baskets left over. The abundance is a reflection of God's love for mankind. I am the good shepherd. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A hired man who is not a shepherd and whose sheep are not his own see a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf catches and scatters them. This is because the hireling, that is, works for pay and has no concern for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Third time. I know mine, and mine know me, just as this book indicated here. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I will lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold, and these also I must lead, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, in reference to that, There are other sheep in the fold, 
And this is in reference to those people outside of the Jewish community. Remember, he is talking to the Jewish community here. But he recognizes and knows that there are a number of people who will eventually come into the fold. Later, of course. These also I must lead, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. You see, this whole chapter and the next one are sort of getting us ready for, you might say, uh, Jesus' hour, which, of course, is this passion, death, and resurrection, which we will begin in chapter 13. All right. But this one is sort of getting us ready to see that that is coming. Let me explain this laying down and so forth. The whole idea of Jesus coming to earth. There were many reasons, you might say. But the primary reason was out of divine love for his father. The divine love between father and son is what creates, you might say, the Holy Spirit. You have You have the the father. Oops. Thank you. You have the father up here. Doesn't look like the father, but you know that's what then. All right, and then the love between the father and the son is what creates the Holy Spirit. Okay. There is a, a long theological explanation for that, but that's as far as I want to go right now. Okay. So we mustn't think about the fact that the Father, I've heard this explained by some non-Catholic people that sort of blew my mind when I heard it, that the Father sends the Son to earth to die because the Father is so angry with the sinners on earth. But no, 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 no. It is the need that the Trinity sees for a way to reconcile sinful mankind back to God. And therefore, there has to be a sacrifice that is worthy of divinity, and mankind has nothing that is worthy of divinity, and therefore God himself had to come in the form of Christ to give mankind that something to give back to the Father. So Christ comes and represents all of mankind and takes upon himself willingly the sins of all mankind, and through his death of his perfect nature, 
he then creates that sacrifice that mankind could not offer. Okay. So this is what he's talking about. This is why the Father loves me. Because that love is fulfilled in the sacrifice of his son willingly. Remember, Christ had the power to do anything he wished. And so he could have, you know, just kind of swapped the Romans across the face and Pilate included and walked away from that. But he didn't because that was part of the plan. And so he accepted it willingly. We have to keep that in mind because it comes up two or three times in the next few chapters and then several times uh, in the chapters afterwards. All right. This command I have received from my father, which is just what I have explained here. Again, there was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is possessed and out of his mind. Why listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of a possessed person. Surely a demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, such as he did in the previous chapter, which we talked about last week. And that's the end of this uh, good shepherd story, you might say. All right? Or is it? Not really. Let's go on. The Feast of the Dedication. Now, this is entirely unrelated in a way, and yet nothing is entirely unrelated in this gospel. Okay? But it does not appear to be chronologically following. The Feast of the Dedication was then taking place in Jerusalem. Now, this is what, as we know today, Hanukkah, the Feast of the Dedication comes as part of Hanukkah, which was not originally a religious holiday. It was more like our Fourth of July. And it was celebrating the uh, triumph of the Maccabee family, and that is the father, Julius Maccabeus, and the two sons, over the Greek king, uh, Antiochus IV, in the second century BC, where the Greeks, the Greek king and, and his followers, tried to overrun, this is still under the uh, final, you might days of the Greek Empire, uh, conquered Rome for a short, I mean, conquered Jerusalem for a short time, and did abominable things to the temple, uh, such as using uh, prostitutes and so forth to do what prostitutes do on the altar and sacrificing uh, a pig on the altar, etc., etc., you can read all of that in First uh, and Second Maccabees, or uh, the Book of Daniel is based on that, except that it's in apocalyptic language. Steve, did you have a comment? Uh, okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, so the Feast of Dedication celebrates the triumph over the. Greek king and the restoration of the temple 
back uh, to God. Okay. And that was then carried out on an annual basis and became the basis for our feast or the current celebration of Hanukkah, which generally comes uh, in December very close to Christmas. Okay. Uh, it was winter, and Jesus walked about in the temple area uh, on the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one takes them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can take them out of the Father's hand. For the Father and I are one. Remember this goes back to where I've said before. Wherever and whatever Jesus does or wherever he is, the Father is always with him and so is the Son. Because their goals, their objectives, their ideas are always in unison. The Jews again picked up rocks to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from my father. For which of these are you trying to stone me? The Jews answered, we are not stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy. You, a man, are making yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. That comes from Psalm 82. If it calls them gods, to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be set aside. Can you say that the one whom the Father has consecrated and sent into the world blasphemes because he said, I am the Son of God. If I do not perform my Father's works, do not believe me. But if I perform them, even if you do not believe me because of the works, so that you may realize and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they again tried to arrest, arrest him, but he escaped from their power. Okay. Again, it's really disgusting the fact that his activities on earth are part of God's plan of salvation. And it is one of the main reasons why we should not only listen to him, but follow him. Okay. Follow him. I'm going to go on to chapter 11 because it's a long chapter and it has a lot of meaning sort of tucked in and around it. Well, wait, let's go back for a minute here. The dedication. I've been asked in other classes when I've taught this that 
what is so important? Why does the church today celebrate various dedications of certain churches? Particularly the church of St. Paul out the wall, outside the walls in Rome and the church of St. Mary Major. Both of those uh, feast of dedications are, if they fall on a Sunday, celebrated as a feast day. It is in commemoration of this. But the other idea here is that if you go back to the story of Jesus talking about to the woman at the well, remember this is a Samaritan woman who, you know, she gets really confused uh, and misunderstands what Christ is trying to say to her. And she said, well, you people... um, only celebrate or worship in the temple in Jerusalem, whereas we celebrate in the temple on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus said, yes, but a time will come soon when you will neither worship in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim. And of course, he's talking about after the Romans destroy Jerusalem and pretty much decimate Israel as well as the temple. And of course, what he's really saying and referring to is the fact that we don't need a building to worship our God. We worship him with our mind, our heart, and our soul. Moving on to chapter 11. Well, let's go back. Any any questions on any of this so far? Steve? Yeah, that's true. Uh, unfortunately, it is not mentioned by name as Hanukkah, because that, yes, the, the winter feast of dedications, all right? Uh, and it is still sort of a uh, tail end, you might say, of uh, the feast of tabernacles. Okay? There's three main uh, celebrations within that period of time, okay? You have Rosh Hashanah or Rosh Hashanah, uh, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Dedication. So the the three uh, Jewish celebrations within this time period. Also, the Feast of Dedications is one of the three times uh, that the Jewish people at the time of Christ were required to go to Jerusalem and worship in the temple. All right. Let's move on to chapter 11. Now a man was ill, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, his sisters. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume oil and dried his feet with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was ill. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Master, the one you love is ill. When Jesus heard this, he said, This illness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, you've got to understand, Jesus and his uh, apostles 
are in another location. They are not in the same town. Okay. Mary sends word to him somehow, um, but there is a distance that we have to deal with here. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Master, the one uh, you love is ill. When Jesus heard this, he said, The illness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God, and the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he remained for two days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just trying to stone you there, and you want to go back? Jesus answered, there are, are there not twelve hours in a day? If one walks during the day, he does not stumble, but because, uh, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks at night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. That was a kind of strange words, are they not? Uh, you got to remember, in this time period, no street lamps, very little outdoor lighting. What was outdoors were torches that, you know, quite often went out. So, but he's not really talking about walking in the dark or the daylight. He's talking about understanding, walking with reason and knowledge and understanding and acceptance versus those people who will not actually dig into the teachings, uh, the Jewish teachings of the time period to recognize what the Messiah would be like and what he would be teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, belief and disbelief. And that's throughout this whole gospel that John uses the idea of darkness for disbelief or in sometimes just plain ignorance. Innocent ignorance, that is. Yeah. Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I'm going to awaken him. And so the disciples said to him, Master, if he's asleep, he will be saved. In other words, they are taking it literally being asleep, meaning death. He is dead. But Jesus was talking about his death while, while they thought that he meant ordinary sleep. So then Jesus said to them clearly, Lazarus has died. And I am, again, glad for you that I was not there. That you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas called Didymus, you know all <clears throat> who that is, said to his fellow disciples, let us go to die with him. That sounds almost like something coming out of Peter's mouth. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, why four days? Uh, 
Yes. Uh, the inference here... Yeah, well, that's right. They wanted to make sure he was really dead, yes. But secondly, uh, or, or perhaps more importantly, if it were three days, it would conflict with other prophecies about the raising of, from the dead uh, on the third day. Okay. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem only about two miles away. And many of the Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, he went. she went to meet him. But Mary sat at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Good Jewish mother. If you had been here, you know. <clears throat> But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise. Martha said to him, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Of course, he's speaking now of spiritual life. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. It means that those people who are still alive, even though their body dies, if they believe in him, their soul will live on. This is, if you know, this contrast here. If they're dead already, they will be alive at a point in time after the resurrection. If they haven't died, they will be alive after they die. This is the same thing that Paul wrote in Second Thessalonians versus Second Corinthians. One is talking about the people that died before Christ. Will they be saved after the resurrection? The other one is talking about the people that die afterwards. Uh, you have the same uh, difference of opinion there. Jesus said to him, Yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. Let's back up a little bit. I know he will rise, Martha says, in the resurrection of the last, on the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, God has control over life and death. That is the point you've got to get out of this whole story. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies physically, he will live. And anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. His body will die, but his soul will live on. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I have come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. 
And that, of course, is in reference to the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 uh, by Moses. When she had said this, she went and called her sister, Mary, secretly, saying, The teacher is here and asking for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she rose quickly and went to him. For Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still where Martha had met him. Now you can imagine that there are a lot of people around, and they're sort of delaying his uh, progress and entry into the village. So when the Jews who were with her, Mary that is, in the house, comforting her, Mary get up, got up quickly and, and goes out. They follow her, presuming that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing that her sister said. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he became disturbed, or perturbed as it says here, and deeply troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? Now, why would he become disturbed, or perturbed as it says here, and deeply troubled, when he's known for four days that Lazarus was dead? It is more that he is seeing the lack of faith and these people, then he is concerned about their grief. Yes, there is grief there, but he is more concerned that the fact that the people have not picked up on what he's been teaching all along. They don't have the same faith as Martha and Mary do, obviously. Where have you laid him, he said. And they said to him, Sir, come and see. And Jesus wept. Now this is probably a human emotion because Jesus was human and certainly not uh, the, the cold person that sometimes uh, it implies. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have done something so that this man would not have died? So Jesus, perturbed again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay across it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the dead man's sister, said to him, Lord, by now there will be a stench. Remember Jews did not always embalm uh, their bodies, and today they still do not embalm their bodies, but they lay all kinds of uh, heavy spices around them. Okay? Uh, so, so, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you have always heard me. But because of the crowd here, 
I have said this, that you may believe, I'm sorry, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, tied hand and foot with burial bands, and his face wrapped in a cloth. So Jesus said to them, Untie him and let him go. Now, if you'll remember this, when on Easter morning, the gospel, the same gospel, will talk about Peter and James running to the tomb after uh, Mary Magdalene tells them that she has seen the risen Lord. And it is also uh, interesting because in that case, the wrappings are in one place and the napkin that covers the, the face of Christ is folded and laying in a separate place, indicating that Christ rose from the dead on his own power, or under the power of God, you might say, uh, but was totally aware and in control. Whereas in this case, Jesus raises Lazarus back to normal earthly life. The two are not the same. Lazarus is not resurrected. He is restored to earthly life and must die again later. But Jesus is resurrected into a glorious life of the hereafter. Big difference. Yes. Yes, but he was still human. You see? And you're right, he could be weeping for the fact that so many people disbelieved. Uh, but now he is told, let's back up a little bit in time, he has told both Martha and Mary that he is the resurrection and the life. Alright? But even then, Martha says, well, you know, there's going to be a stench and so forth. Well, Jesus, in the process, could have taken care of all of that and probably did. But he's still human. And he loved this man. Alright? So, Part of his weeping is a reflection of his human life and emotions. But the other part is because of the lack of understanding or refusal to understand of a lot of the people that are there. But you see, what he does is after these teachings to both Martha and Mary, and I assume those immediately around, he says, all right, Lazarus, come out. In other words, he proves what he was saying by this miracle. Now, many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen what he had done began to believe in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Boo. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, What are we going to do? This man is performing many signs. If we leave him alone, all will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our land 
in our nation, and of course, what's not a sphere is our jobs. Yeah, and that's of course, they're more concerned about their jobs and their dignity, etc., than they are about anything else. So again, their minds are blind to the fact that this is the fulfillment of prophecies uh, of the Old Testament. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing, nor do you consider that it is better for you that one man should die instead of the people, so that the whole nation may not perish. Well, that's exactly what happened. But he didn't know that he was prophesying uh, about something that was in the process of happening. But the people would not perish. Uh, of course, that turned out to be a spiritual uh, reaction rather than a physical. He did not say this on his own, but since he was high priest for that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also uh, to gather into one the dispersed children of God. Of course, this is the, the spiritual side. So from that day on, they planned to kill him. So Jesus no longer walked about in public among the Jews, but he left for the region near the desert to a town called Ephraim. And there he remained with his disciples. Now, throughout this gospel, it talks about Jesus crossing uh, the Jordan several times. All right, and a lot of people today have, in the past, have asked me, "Well, why would he go into Syria?" Well, that the land on the east side of the Jordan was not Syrian territory uh, at the time of Christ. Israel extended to several miles on the east side of the Jordan uh, and on the Dead Sea. Uh, during this time period. So that was still Israel. Okay. Uh, there weren't defined borders in those days. Uh, beyond the short distance where the Jews did occupy the east side, uh, you know, the rest of it was desert. And wild desert, which wasn't really claimed by anybody. Okay. Now, the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. As I said earlier, Passover was one of the three main uh, holy days that uh, was required. It was required that people go to Jerusalem and worship in the temple. Okay. They looked for Jesus and said to one another, as they were in the temple area, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? For the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he would inform them, so that they might arrest him. And so we get set, you might say, for the whole idea of... Uh, the passion, death, and resurrection. Okay. 
Now, any questions? Uh, because there were three Passovers mentioned in John's Gospel. All right. And that's what gives uh, us the idea that Jesus taught for approximately three years. His public life or public ministry lasted approximately three years. Isn't it also once Jesus died, there's no need for Passover? Well, uh, yes and no. There was a need for a while because and this is an interesting point, and your question is well taken. The question was, after Jesus died, was there no, wasn't there no need for Passover? Well, you see, the Jewish faith still existed, and many of those people uh, adamantly refused to change. And therefore, Passover was continued on, but... Uh, until the destruction of the temple. Now, quite often I've been asked, well, why did God give uh, the Jewish people all that time between the resurrection uh, and ascension of Christ uh, to the destruction of the, the temple? Why didn't he do it sooner? Well, it wasn't God's way of doing things, of wiping people out. He would work with them, cajole them, try to teach them, send messengers such as the prophets, etc. But in that 40 years, he gave them time to see the reality of Christ's teachings and the meaning of the resurrection. And of course, the apostles were teaching and trying to convince the people of the importance of the resurrection. And after the 40 years from the time of Christ's ascension into heaven uh, to 70 A.D., roughly 40, remember, because we don't know exactly what calendar year Christ died in, um, that was the time that Christ, or God, gave the people to change their minds, to see reality. And once the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem took place, then Passover changed dramatically because there was no more um, animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice ceased in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple because that's the only place that it was lawfully carried out. And the point is that it was no longer necessary nor acceptable to God um, as a a true offering uh, for sin, as it originally was. Yes, Joe? Yes. That's, that's right. Yeah. Well, and, and that is one of the reasons why after several of the miracles, not so much in John's Gospel, but the others, 
Christ would tell the recipient or the beneficiary of the miracle not to go out and tell anybody. Uh, and that was for two reasons. Uh, one, of course, the main reason is he wanted people to believe in their mind and their heart, not just because of miracles. And secondly, of course, the more they broadcasted, the more difficult it became for him to, to move around. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Going back to the condition on 56, and I have other sheets that do not belong to this ball, there will be one cloth and one shepherd. And I'm wondering if this refers to at some point, maybe, you know, we have all these different Protestant sects that form their own. That that is yes, that is a hope, but there is no specific prophecy on that. What it is meant here is that people were divided into two main groups Jews and all others. You see. But Christ knew that there would be eventually a lot of non Jews who would begin to believe in him. And what he was hoping for is that the Jews would accept him and all become Christian, which of course never happened. Uh, but it is when when he's talking about other sheep of another fold, he's talking about those people outside of the Jewish community who would eventually come in to be Christian. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I I feel that you're not. No. Well. Still, we have all these different Christians. Yeah, but that didn't that didn't happen. I know, but that didn't happen until the 15th century A.D. or 16th 16th century later. Well, much later, yeah. Really, in, in this part, he's talking about those people at that time. Yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, Percy? Uh, interesting question. Percy just asked, did the Eucharist take the place of Passover? In, in a way, yes. Uh, many of the prayers that we say at Mass are almost identical to the <coughs> prayers used in the Jewish Seder, which, of course, is the Seder is a celebration held on the eve of Passover. Okay. In fact, the last words of the Seder official program, you might say, is uh, go, uh, it is finished. All right? And of course, that's where we get go, the mass is over, or words to that effect. Uh, but I think you'll see, we don't say go, the mass is over any, anymore, or eat it, as we used to in Latin. 
because they're getting away, the church is getting away from using the word mass and prefers to use the celebration of the Eucharist because the word mass has no specific meaning in itself. It comes from the word dismissal or the Latin for dismissal and that in itself really intended to mean go and take what you have learned here out into the world and share it. But that just never took off. Never was accepted. Uh, so the church has sort of given up on that one. All right. and, and you'll get some priests or deacons to use something similar to that. You know, go the masses over and share it with the world or, or words to that effect. Yeah. But you're right, the Eucharist is sort of a derivative of the Passover. Yes. Yes. Yes, Howard? Uh, I read, uh, you said, uh, I lay down my life in order to take it up again. Yeah. Is he pointing to the new everlasting covenant? Yes, very much so. Yeah. But they didn't know it, but they were going to. Yes. Yeah. The, you know, he's, he's laying down his physical life to take it up in a spiritual sense. That's really what he means. And that's what we should look forward to. I, as you probably know, I've just lost a very dear and close friend who, right up to the, well, practically the last day, she was hanging on to life like it was something she had to do. And finally I had to sit her down and say, dear, the doctors have all said, this is the end. There's nothing more that they can do. You've got to. And, you know, she was still determined. And I said, You've got to realize that you have a disease that cannot be conquered, that is robbing you of your strength and your memory. That clicked because it was something that was not under her control. It was something she could blame her death on. She was gone in five days because it allowed her to let go. And that is something that we have to, excuse me, that is something that we have to remember, that God is in control, not us. And that our life and what we do with it is our gift to God. And when he is ready to take us, Nothing is going to prevent us. I have a doctor right here that will pretty much tell you that. You know, they can go so far and beyond that, they cannot go. And God is still in control. And we have to realize that at some point in time and be ready to accept that. Cora, you had a question? Yes. Yes. My question is, so there was this standard judgment 
Yes. That's right. A suspended judgment, yes. Uh-huh. Right. Of course, I was not there. I can't be sure. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I wasn't. Yeah. Uh, but that's true. So, you know, Lazarus isn't the only person that Jesus raised from the dead. You had the little girl, and you also had Jairus' uh, son. Uh, it seems to me there was some one other person. Little widow's son. Well, that was Jairus. Yeah. All right. Uh, those people re- were returned to normal earthly life, not a resurrection. So we got to be careful uh, when we talk about their being raised from the dead. It was not in the same kind of raising as Jesus experienced. Jesus, as far as we know, is the only person, human being, that was raised uh, and experienced uh, the divine resurrection. Okay? We will all, well, the faithful will all experience that at the end of time. Uh, but Christ is the first and only one that was raised from the dead. The other two or three people were restored to normal earthly life and had to die again to complete it. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Well, the Romans were very specific on how much freedom the Jewish people had, okay? Most of the conquered people, that is, within the Roman Empire, had to kind of bow and scrape to Rome. The Jewish people were somewhat a little more fortunate in that they were given a king in name only, Herod, Herod in this case. Uh, and you all know that there were seven Herods. Okay, all right. Uh, in this case, they were given a little bit more independence. Not much, but a little bit more independence. What the, what the, those people in charge, the king and the temple rulers, the temple rulers, you know, the high priest, as it mentioned here, Caiaphas, and his father, or grand, no, father-in-law, Annas, uh, were really in control. They were afraid that if Jesus were allowed to live and people were following him, they would totally ignore the uh, temple rulers and the king. And then that would create a problem for the Romans. So it was more their own protection, keeping their jobs and so forth. And that's why they wanted him out of the way. They totally uh, neglected their own writings, their own teachings of the past, which talked about 
what Jesus was doing. Uh, particularly uh, the book of Isaiah. Yeah. Okay. Any other? Yes, Susan? Well, we've got another ten minutes or so, you know. Yes. Yeah. Um, as you go forth in reading the next few chapters, we're going to add a little bit more because next week we would like you to take on three chapters. Uh, chapter 12 is sort of a transition chapter between the book of signs and the book of glory. I really think it should be attached to the book of glory, which really starts in chapter 13, which is the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. All right. The raising of Lazarus was the last miracle that John presents in his gospel. That doesn't mean it was the last miracle, but uh, the one that is presented in the gospel itself. So now we will look at why. Up until now, you've had roughly, uh, I guess it was seven miracles. They were all uh, performed, you might say, to support teachings and to tell us who God is in Jesus Christ. Okay. This last one, he is not only the good shepherd that extends uh, abundant love, divine love, unmeasurable love, unconditional love to all mankind. But don't take that to mean that God will accept just anything and everything because divine love requires uh, a balance. And that is divine justice. And so you have uh, consequences for those people who do not partake or share in the divine love or reflect anything other than love. Divine consequences as well as divine love is extremely important. All right. Then we have, of course, the epitome, you might say, of miracles, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which is sort of a way of saying, see, all that I have taught you, and I'm talking as if I were Christ, of course, see all that I have taught you up till now. I am confirming by this miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And that, listen to me, Listen and partake. And if you do not, then you have to suffer the consequences. And that's what Christ is saying. And it's surprising how even today people will not accept Christ for some of the flimsiest reasons. And that is why I preach and teach and write because it is so important to the individual that they understand who Christ is for them and what Christ did. And we will be seeing that now in, in the next half of this gospel. 
what Christ did for us. And it is something that we should take serious, particularly during this season of Lent. But again, don't look at it as if Christ is a victim. Christ is not a victim, even in this horrible death on the cross. It is the reaction and the culmination of God's plan of salvation. That if Christ had not died out of love for mankind, we could never return to heaven because there was a sacrifice that was required. The divine love of God has divine rules, just like everyone or everything else has rules. And it requires that satisfaction for the sins of mankind be paid. And Christ was the one and the only one who could do that. And so that's the way we should look at it. And as he says, I lay down my life of my own free will, and I can take it up again. He has the power to take it up again, and it will be returned to him uh, as God accepts the sacrifice that he has made, and that acceptance of the sacrifice that Christ made is shown by the fact of his resurrection. So, that's what we have to look forward to in the next uh, several chapters. And that's what we should look forward to uh, at Easter when we celebrate it. It is not just uh, a holiday. It is a very, very holy day. And we have to thank God uh, that we have it. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for helping us to better understand the importance of the passion, death, and resurrection coming up. The importance of what you have taught us through John's Gospel. Give us the strength now to see what we have to learn what we have to re-remind ourselves about as we go forward in reading the details of the Passion. Give us the strength, then, to open our minds and our hearts and help us, then, to accept. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.